I'd like to welcome everyone to the Software Spotlight, your front row seat to the latest innovations in AI and software technology for small business. I'm Michael Burnswag, your host. Each week, we're joined by executives at leading software companies to get an insider's perspective on the emerging technologies, business strategies, and market trends shaping the future. Tune in to stay ahead of the curve on leveraging artificial intelligence to boost productivity and growth in your business. Be sure to visit our website, softwareoasis.com, to access our free weekly software newsletter to stay up to date on the latest trends in technology. Also, be sure to register for our 2024 software webinar series. This week, we're in for a real treat. Uh, Joining us, we have Brian Childress. He's an accomplished technologist and fractional CTO who helps companies fix their software products. Uh, With deep expertise across software, engineering, cloud computing, and cybersecurity, Brian provides invaluable guidance to help CEOs and CTOs make strategic decisions that drive business growth. So with that, Brian, welcome to the podcast. Michael, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Very nice. I'm glad glad to have you join us. And uh, I can tell you a lot of times, um, you know, we've seen uh, different uh, companies ramp up, uh, you know, ahead of uh, the the reality of their infrastructure that they have set up and get themselves into all kinds of trouble. And then we've seen uh, other solutions that never quite ramped up. So obviously, uh, there's uh, a little bit of guidance that can be had on on both ends of of the uh, the equation there. But I was hoping you could give our listeners a little bit of background on what it is that you do and how you help these uh, companies? Yeah. So my background is in, uh, I'm a software engineer, software architect by trade and training. And now as a fractional CTO, I have an opportunity to work with a number of different companies, typically startups and small and medium businesses that are developing software. So they may be developing a SaaS platform, that they're selling out to their customers. It may be a platform that they're using internally to serve their customers. And I help them to figure out problems with their particular platform. They could be running into scaling challenges. Uh, They could be running into issues with code quality or being able to bring additional developers onto the platform. They may have security concerns, and a lot of companies do. They may be looking to leverage uh, AI and how can they take advantage of the data that they have uh, within their systems. And so I get to work with companies uh, across the spectrum, across different industries to really help them to improve their software. And I, I guess a great question is, how, how did you first get into uh, software development and uh, how did you get to where you are today? Uh, so, yeah, I like to say I was not the kid at eight years old building programs and computer games on my family's computer. That just wasn't me. Um, I really didn't get into technology and software more formally until graduate school, honestly. Uh, And so I started in the geographic information systems field or GIS uh, and, you know, really started programming and processing and understanding a lot of data. At that time, we were using Python 
uh, and then really just kind of gravitated more towards just the software engineering components and dove headfirst into that. Uh, so, you know, after graduate school, I went through and kind of rose through the ranks as a software engineer alongside, you know, working full time for different organizations and government contracting. I was also doing a lot of freelancing and moonlighting, continuing to expose myself to as many different technologies and industries and problems as I could. Uh, and from there, just continued to grow and evolve, uh, rose through the ranks up and, and served a few different organizations as a software architect and really helping to drive the way that you know, those companies leverage technology to better serve their businesses. Uh, and now I, I get to do it as a, a fractional CTO. So it sounds like your your focus has been, you know, highly in the areas of, of application security and API design. Is that, um, you know, the, the two biggest areas that you've found yourself uh, spending most of your time? I, I would say so. Yeah, I definitely spend a lot of time there. Uh, and really, for me, I always want to drive it back to what is the business problem that we're solving? For a lot of companies, it's some sort of API integration, for example, that they want to expose you know, the functionality and the data that their system has to their, their clients. Um, and application security has is, is always been an area that I've just kind of gravitated to, had a lot of interest in. And, you know, I feel like I do uh, pretty well in those areas. So uh, I definitely hang out and study a lot in, in the security space as well. Great. And as far as like API, you know, just on that specific area, are there common challenges that you see companies coming to you with in, in their APIs and, you know, getting, getting that set up correctly or, you know, working with the API that they may already have in place? Yeah, there's a, a couple things that I see very commonly, Michael, and that's really the first is around consistency. So as a consumer of an API, you know, I, I want it to be fairly easy for me to understand how do I do something? And so once I figure out how do I do something in one portion of the API, my expectation as a user is to be able to do the same or similar for another portion of the API. So say, for example, there's a, a user's portion of the interface, and I want to get user or update user. If I have a, a products portion of the API, I would expect the same type of formatting for the API, all the way down to the name and the header values and the parameters that are passed. I'm expecting consistency so that I can kind of learn one portion and be able to transfer that knowledge. When we have different ways of doing things or passing values or receiving values back from something like an API, it can be very confusing and ultimately pretty frustrating for customers and consumers. And a lot of times, you know, our consumers are other developers. So we really want to be focusing on making their lives easier because they're going to be the ones interacting with our platform. And it's funny, a lot of times you would think that, um, you know, with a, a, a common language that uh, there would just be a standard way of doing things. But obviously, uh, you probably are called in at, at, at times in, into some pretty, pretty hairy situations, I would assume, when, uh, when things aren't going so well, or, you know, when there are challenges to, to overcome. 
Um, and, and I would think, um, you know, getting structure in place, you know, surrounding APIs uh, would be a, a, a first step in, in getting things uh, structured correctly. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And when we think about that kind of structure, we're always talking about scalability in, in software and in businesses, right? We want to be able to scale. And for me, consistency plays a big role in scalability, not just for being able to add more users, which is typically what we often think about, but it's how can I add more features to the platform or how can I add more developers to the platform? And having that consistency across the board just enables all of those areas to scale. Now, in you know, from where you stand, if you were talking to clients in general, what what do you feel makes a good API design? Like, as far as like a, a, a overall design concepts or kind of like goalposts to stay within. I think a big one is not just around consistency, but some of the naming conventions. So, as a user. What are the things that I'm going to be asking for or that I'm trying to do with the API? Uh, what are the common terms that that business in that particular industry uses so that we can have kind of a, a shared terminology and a shared vernacular, not only from the business perspective, but all the way through to the technology? And we want to really just make it just so easy that for us to have a conversation we're not trying to translate from the tech side to the business side. We're just using the same language across the board. And then again, having some consistency and how do I pass values to the API? And then how do I receive values back from the API? So that I can always feel confident that I'm able to parse the information that I'm expecting in the right way. And I don't get into these weird edge cases. Um, in those weird edge cases, that's where a lot of bugs tend to happen, not just on the API, but from our consumers as well. Uh, so really just, just focusing so much on that consistency just makes things so much easier for everyone. And as far as um, common mistakes that you see companies making, are, are there you know, a handful of maybe stories or common API design mistakes that you see companies making and things to avoid? I think a lot of APIs in the early days are built, uh, you know, we're just trying to prove something. We're trying to show that we can get access to some amount of information. And so when we're building the API or the underlying logic that serves the API, we're thinking in very, very small terms, right? I need to go get one user. I need to go and get, you know, an array of four or five users, right? Very limited subset because that's likely going to be the amount of dummy data that I have on my machine as I'm going through that development process. But what happens is when that API actually goes out into the wild and starts to serve real customers, we start to run into some really big performance challenges very early on. Because the way that we thought about things and the way that we designed things was to work around a very small subset. And we didn't think about how is this actually going to be consumed? How is this actually going to be leveraged by our customers? The other area that I see a lot of mistakes or a lot of opportunity is around our ability to understand what the heck happened in the system, our ability to troubleshoot issues and be able to 
replicate issues. So if a particular client was trying to ask for a particular set of data, do we know what happened? Can we you know, recreate that scenario so that then we can get to uh, you know, our ability to troubleshoot that much faster? When we kind of go into the unknown and don't really have a lot of information, we don't have really quality logging or great monitoring in place, then we have a lot of trouble. And it can be really frustrating for the end consumer because they're waiting for us to fix the problem, but we don't even know what the problem is. So, you know, for a company that's that's listening to us <clears throat> talking now, are there like some tips that you have for properly documenting APIs that, that are just good fun foundational principles that you think they should uh, follow when they're working on their documentation? Follow the, the industry-leading standards, right? The open API spec is a really popular one uh, that's easy for developers to kind of put into their workflow. So as they're creating new API endpoints, for example, they can be creating that documentation. That documentation can serve for not only helping developers understand what's in the platform, it can help in consumers, and it can also be leveraged for uh, you know, robust API testing as well. So really solid documentation that follows kind of an industry standard is what I always recommend because then that can serve multiple purposes. And we have multiple places where we're continuing to test and ensure that our documentation is up to date, which is always a challenge for us in software. Makes makes good sense. And the other area, you know, we we kind of touched on it earlier, but as far as application security, um are, are there some common vulnerabilities that you see in software applications overall that 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 you could boil down to like a handful of of common uh, types of of mistakes that you see companies making? I think the most common mistakes that I see and the ones that are most difficult to identify, especially through things like automated tools, is around access control, understanding who is accessing the system and what data or what functionality do they have access to. So it's all about getting the right data to the right person at the right time. That's the area that I see the biggest challenge within organizations and within applications is just understanding how do we expose the right information and the right functionality at the right time. Got it. No, that makes, makes a lot of sense. And obviously, uh, you know, while while sitting here, you and I talking, it you know, it's it's kind of like top of mind and and like an easy uh, easy uh, thing to identify. Obviously, it's something that uh, companies need to put a lot of thought into and and planning. And I guess that that brings me to to a great question. So, with the uh, types of clients that you're working with, are there different ways in which they they might engage with you to to work with their organization is it typically a specific project they may come to you with initially or is it like an ongoing type of um, relationship where you're advising them as they're developing new new solutions or fixing old solutions or what's typical uh, well, like every good answer in software, Michael, is it depends, right? It really does depend on the organization, what uh, phase they're in, what level of maturity they have within the organization. So I'll help organizations everywhere from 
picking a, a new set of technologies and designing the architecture for a new solution that they plan to build, all the way to diving deep into the code to look for performance issues and trying to identify you know, how can we improve the overall performance and scalability of our application, and then everywhere in between. But typically, most of my engagements these days, uh, I operate on a retainer model. So I, you know, there's a kind of a monthly engagement with my clients, everywhere from an hour a week to say 20 hours a week, where I get to work with the team, I get to work closely with the stakeholders, to identify and solve the problems that they have. And a lot of times, uh, you know, I'm able to bring in systems. I'm able to bring in my, you know, robust set of playbooks that has templates and all sorts of things that then I can really steer the ship in the right direction. I can, you know, get the team moving uh, to a kind of a shared common vision and remove a lot of those barriers that the company might have. Great. No, that that's very helpful. As far as um, playbooks, like, can you talk to us in terms of application security? Just best practices for building secure applications, like from the start, as companies as it's still on the drawing board and they're working towards uh, towards their solution. I think that's one of the the things that we always want, but the thing that always kind of lags behind is security, right? Because security if we think about it in a way that it's a hindrance to us and it slows us down, we're much more apt to kind of push it to the side and let's get functionality in place and then we'll layer security back on top. And you said it perfectly that how do we focus on security from the start? How do we make security foundational? I think that comes in a, a couple different flavors. One, we just have to make sure that we're always talking about it. Any feature that we're thinking about, okay, how does security play into this? And really making that kind of the culture of the development process of the software that we're building, making that kind of just a core tenant is is around security. Uh, and then, you know, I think it's important for uh, developers to really understand application security, even in simple terms, right? They don't need to be, you know, super in-depth, knowledgeable experts on it, but just having a good understanding of what is application security? What are the most common vulnerabilities that we have? And the OWASP top 10 is my go-to resource to really help educate developers uh, on a continual basis, right? Because there are new uh, areas that we have to think about and prioritize around security as you know, things evolve, as the industry and the tools and the technologies that we use evolve. Very good. Now, clearly, you're an expert in API and, and security and, and these areas. Uh, but a lot of times, I'm sure that you're coming into existing situations where companies may have a, a team on hand that may have some knowledge of different areas, but may not have the exact expertise needed to um, to get to where they need to get to on a specific project. How do you buffer the um, the interpersonal portions of, you know, coming in midstream with a company where, you know, quite honestly, it, you might be walking into a fire. Like how, how do you, you know, work in that type of situation to be able to, you know, set people at ease, get things on the right track and, and not, not um, you know, create un, unnecessary friction? 
Yeah, this is a, a tricky one. Um, I like to say that technology is the easiest part of what we do, right? The, the hard part is actually, you know, between us fleshy humans um, in that interaction model. So for me, when I come in, I, I have to be very careful about how I come in and how I kind of present myself. Um, you know, especially if there may already be a CTO in place or somebody in, you know, a very kind of leadership uh, position that's really driving a lot of the technology decisions, I can be seen very much as a threat. And I have to diffuse that, you know, feeling of being a threat very early on. And so one of the very first things that I do on any team, on any project that I'm joining, because most of them, you know, like I say, are already existing projects is I come in and thank them. I thank them for all the work, all the late hours, the blood, sweat, and tears that they've poured into the project to get us to this point. Because if it wasn't for all of that work, there would be nothing for me to come in and help them take to the next level. So I really have to you know, express my deep gratitude of all the work that they've done and recognize that they're doing the best or they've done the best that they can based on the knowledge, based on the resources, the time and the money that they had available to them and not just kind of come in and just you know, trash everything that they have and just say, oh, this is terrible. We need to throw it all away. Just really recognizing that hard work. And then from there, I need to understand what experience, what expertise, what knowledge does the team have and then build the plan based on that. I can't come in and say, oh, well, this isn't a terrible technology. We should change our programming language entirely. And then basically that's going to, you know, just put everyone, you know, on their back foot and really kind of, they're, they're not going to be on my side. And so I, everything I do has to make sure that I'm moving us not only in the direction that the business needs to go, but I have a, a team there to support me as well. So I'm always looking for ways that I can leverage the existing knowledge base, the existing technologies that are in place to then move us to that next level. Uh, and as part of that, I, I really try and set kind of that big vision, uh, you know, and I think that's important for engineers and developers to understand is that, you know, the things that we are working on and so focused on day in and day out may seem so small and so, you know, non-impactful. And I really want to kind of tie the, the bigger vision of where we're going to the important work that we're doing every day so that it makes that work just that much more valuable and much more um, impactful for the developers so they feel a bigger sense of ownership. No, and I think that's great because I know a lot of um, executives that are probably listening to this podcast now might be saying to themselves, wow, this is exactly what we need. Uh, but you know, how's it all going to come together and how's it going to work? And I think that, you know, probably sets a lot of people at ease because clearly you've done this, uh, a handful of times and, uh, understand the, the human element to, uh, technology, which is, is clearly important. If you were to say to, to companies that are listening to this podcast, um, if you had a, a bullet point or two on how they can improve their application security process um, at a at a high level. Are there there's some key elements in in you know improving the process that you might throw out there to companies? I think the first thing that I would look to is uh, 
what is the understanding uh, from you know our technologists, from our developers, uh, from everyone on the technology team? How do they understand tech, uh, security? How does that security play into the application development? Because what I find a lot of times is, you know, executives will say, "Oh, well, we want this to be the most secure, you know, application. Do everything that focuses on security. We have to be secure." But then that message doesn't really translate well when it gets to the developers because everyone kind of has a different sense of security, a different, you know, level of understanding of the impact of the potential. And so I think one of the areas that I would encourage a lot of folks to really focus on is just making sure that your developers are aware and kind of understand security. And again, in the very most simple terms, um, you know, looking at things like the OAuth top 10 are a great resource to start. Perfect. And are there a couple of, um, you know, projects that you've worked on over the years or, you know, different uh, solutions and companies that you've helped, maybe, maybe not companies in particular, but just uh, big wins that, 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 that have made you feel really good in terms of, um, you know, when you walked away from the project or, you know, even if you were still continuing on the project to see them come full circle that, that you could share with our listeners? Yeah, there's a couple that come to mind, but I'll, uh, I'll reference a kind of a uh, machine learning AI project that I uh, helped out with earlier last year. And really, when I came into the project, um, I think overall, the project was three or four weeks behind on delivery. Uh, unfortunately, nothing was working end to end. And what was interesting about this particular project was they had like a, a, a actual end date. They had an actual deadline that was immovable, right? A lot of the deadlines that we come up with in software, like they're just kind of like general guesses. This one was like, you know, there's an event that's happening. And if the software isn't delivered, then it was just, it wasn't valuable to us at all. And so we really, that was an interesting constraint to have. And so when I came in, I took a look at what is it that we're trying to do and what is it that we have the ability to do, right? What, what resources, what uh, knowledge do I have within the team? And I got to work very quickly. So within the first day, um, I had re-architected the entire system end to end. And in that, pulled out about 80% of technologies that we just didn't need. There was just, you know, it was almost like somebody went down the uh, AWS console and just picked items off like it was a buffet. There were just so many technologies that were just unnecessary, that weren't communicating with each other. It was just overly complex. And so what I did was just take it down to the very most simple terms. said, these are the technologies we're going to keep. This is how data flows through the system. And from there, we were able to get to work. And so the first day we re-architected, within a week we had everything working end to end. And then within the matter of probably about three weeks, I was able to not only be processing millions of records a day worth of information, we were also able to scale the team and bring on new development resources to help us out. And they were able to be successful very quickly because the technology, the tech stack was just so simple to understand. It was no longer this complex thing to, to try and wrap your mind around. It was just a very, very simple thing that developers could really kind of pinpoint where they fit into that overall uh, ecosystem. 
Great. So, so that, that gives a really clear example. Um, now, you mentioned that you've also worked in other industries. Um, obviously, AI is top of mind for a lot of companies, but are there other examples that you can give from, from some other industries that, that you were really proud of that, uh, that the client uh, you know, was able to share a big win? Uh, let's see. Another one, um, maybe even more recently than that, I was consulting with a healthcare startup, um, and they had uh, a couple challenges going on. Their application continued to see success. They were gaining a lot of clients. One of the challenges, though, that they had was the application was had so many different ways of being configured that were so specific to certain client implementations that from a development perspective, it was so difficult for them to come, a brand new developer to come in and understand. And on average, it was taking about six months for a brand new experienced developer, but brand new to the project to come on and be able to confidently contribute to the production code base. Now, six months at a developer salary that's a huge expense to the business. How do we cut that down so that developers who you know are familiar with the languages and the frameworks and some of the technologies, but they you know just need to understand kind of the business side of things? How can we make that much more efficient so that a developer can come in and feel confident that they can contribute much more quickly? Right, that benefits not only the business but also the developer as well. Because if I feel like I can contribute then I feel like I'm bringing value and I'm much more likely to stay around on the team uh, where the organization was definitely uh, challenged with uh, a lot of attrition on the team as well. And out of curiosity, obviously, it sounds like you've, you're pretty well-rounded, but um, in the two areas that you specialize in, are there specific industries that you've seen gravitate towards your talents, Brian, or uh, is it across the board? Uh, really, I mean, I've worked across a number of different industries, but the two primary that I, I probably focus on the most is definitely in finance. I do a lot in the finance space. I work with banks and uh, marketplace applications, a number of different uh, applications in that area, and then in healthcare as well. So, you know, I've really spent a good bit of time working in kind of highly regulated industries industries that are dealing with a lot of sensitive data. Uh, and so that's a, an area that I definitely spend uh, most of my time. No, and I can absolutely imagine with, with the two specialties that you have, that, that makes a lot of sense. So as we're wrapping up, are there uh, key lessons or advice that you can give to aspiring software architects that are just uh, heading down that road and getting up and running in, in the field? A couple pieces of advice there. I always think that simple software wins. And so software and technology uh, by itself is already complex. And so I always encourage uh, folks to not add additional complexity because they think it's cool or interesting or fun and shiny, but really focusing on technology that serves the business problem. Right. We all want to think that we're going to be this huge organization with millions of users and having to serve billions of API requests. Unfortunately, that's not really the case for most of us. Uh, and so really focusing on how do we use 
technology to best serve the business and keeping it simple. It's just so simple using boring technologies. I've had the most success in my career when the applications and the software that I built was based on industry-leading boring technologies. Uh, it makes a lot of, lot of good sense. So for any of our, our listeners that are saying, hey, you know, I have a project that sounds like it would be a perfect fit. Um, can you, I, I know we covered it a little bit earlier in the, in the uh, podcast, but can you kind of go over the different models as to how you um, contract with different companies? Like how, wh- what's the starting point? Like where, where do they um, get started and what, what does a project look like? So the first place that I always start is just a, a simple video call. It's an opportunity for us to connect, for me to try and understand uh, the challenges that you have and if it is a, a good fit. If I feel like I'm going to be able to help uh, bring value and, and solve the problems that you might have. Oftentimes in that 30, 45 minute call, I'm able to give some actionable advice and you know, folks are able to go and take and implement with their team. If we need a bit more of a, a longer term engagement, typically everything that I do starts at a three month uh, engagement, uh, and it's based on the number of hours that we think uh, will be needed. You know, so it could be everywhere from an hour call a week with unlimited you know, asynchronous access to me, all the way up until twenty hours a week, uh, where we have a lot more video calls and a lot more engagement. I'm kind of taking over a lot more of the responsibility around managing the team and the architecture and so forth. Uh, so it really kind of depends. Uh, but we always start with, let's figure out if this is a good fit and some of the challenges that I might be able to help solve. Great. No, I think that that's really helpful. And um, for anyone that's looking to reach out to you, what is the best way for them to uh, contact you to, to get things rolling? And obviously, we'll leave a link in the show notes, but um, are there different channels that are better than others? Uh, email works great, but I would say the best channel for me right now is LinkedIn. That's really where I'm most active. Uh, I encourage folks to you know, connect with me there, send me a message. Uh, I'm very active on there, sharing a lot of the insights that you know I get to learn from different client engagements every day. Um, so I'm happy to uh, to help out there. Okay, perfect. Well, I really appreciate your time uh, joining us on the Software Spotlight this week. That was really uh, very helpful, and I think provides a, a unique and uh, and uh, different perspective for our listeners. Uh, were there any other uh, details that uh, you wanted to make sure we covered or or let our listeners know about? No, I don't think so. Michael, I really appreciated the opportunity to speak with you today. Yeah, no, that that's fantastic. And um, so coming up on our, our next episode, uh, we're going to have Sean Tepper. He's a software engineer and entrepreneur who shares his knowledge uh very much so on YouTube. A lot of people have seen his videos and uh, we'll be covering uh, topics like stock investing, business ideas, marketing, and software development. Uh, he first taught himself uh, to code in college before learning and leading engineering teams at various startups. And he enjoys building products and providing practical tips for aspiring founders on how to cost-effectively validate ideas and turn those ideas into business reality and uh, 
get products launched. So be sure to visit our website, softwareoasis.com, to access our free weekly software newsletter and sign up for our upcoming 2024 webinar series. So thank you for joining us, Brian. Thank you.